All right, so what they discipline? Welcome again to another episode of Latin and Layman's, where I'm going to be doing some uh, some grammar stuff. I, I'm going to veer off into that realm, where I'm going to talk about relative pronouns and clauses clauses in Latin. There we go, Liam. Uh, let me get a little sippy sip of water real quick. terribly dry here right now in Colorado, especially with a bunch of wind. So, um, yeah, you know what? I'm feeling it. But regardless of which, if you can see what I did right there, we're going to get into relative pronouns and clauses. So uh, there's going to be one rule and one very important rule that I'll try to highlight within this Um this lesson because it's going to be a, a little bit of a longer one just because the concepts are uh, they're a little bit more to grasp you know these things these clauses relative pronouns antecedents um you know all of which we use on a daily day day-to-day -day basis we don't really think about so i'm we're going to try and look at it uh from a different lens and as we do we take it from the lens of latin and then look at at it from the Latin lens back to the English. And that helps us understand fully on how we speak, why we speak, and the ways in which we can speak and manipulate the ways we speak. So without further ado, let's do this. So that being said, that, that important rule is that a relative pronoun agrees with its antecedent in number and gender, but not case. All right. Um, it derives its case from its use in its own clause. So, um, yeah, we'll get into that more, but uh, that's a little bit of um, a rundown. So a clause refers to a dependent or subordinate thought or sentence which is embedded inside another thought or sentence. Yeah, I know, that, that, that nice, I know, that's it's great to think about. So it's like literally a thought within another thought. So when the clause is called subordinate or dependent, it means it can't stand alone grammatically. Therefore, if I said when I'm in bed, um, I mean, yeah, you kind of go like, well, what? Well, because it's not a full thought, right? When I'm in bed, what, what are you doing in bed? You just went when I'm in bed. How about another one? Although you tried, don't you kind of like expect something after that? You can't just, that's not a full thought. While I think I know where you're going with it just to be safe, you ought to just try finishing the grammar, okay, right, because you, we can fill in the blanks, and we don't want, you know, people to uh, to assume what we're talking about a lot of the time, that frustrates us, uh, so um, I think you get the point, the presence of subordinate clauses and conjunctions, like when, although, as, turn sentence, like, I'm home, you tried, they say, into closets, which, which cannot stand, uh, alone, essentially. So moving on to the term relative. So this term is used for the a type of clause we're studying in this lesson. It refers to a certain sort of subordinate clause, which one, um, one which begins with um, what grammarians call a relative pronoun. English has a number of relative pronouns, primarily who and which, but also what and that can sometimes function as a relative pronouns, and um, as we'll soon discover, in English, even the absence of a relative pronoun can indicate the beginning of a relative clause. 
So, yeah, I know. It's a lot. Let it sit. Let it percolate in the old brain. Like I tell my students, we're doing some brain gym, right? We're not. We're lifting weights with our brains. Um, so a relative pronoun is called relative because it relates a subordinate thought to a noun outside the relative clause. So to put it in more of layman's terms, if you see what I did there, the entire clause functions as a sort of large, complex adjective modifying that noun, which is called its antecedent. And just like an adjective, the whole relative clause describes or defines that noun. Let me introduce you to a sentence. Okay? How about I have siblings who eat pizza? Who is a relative pronoun? I have a pizza which eats my siblings. Which is a relative pronoun? This is my pizza that eats my siblings. This is another relative pronoun. What my pizza eats is none of your business. What is a relative pronoun? And finally, or do you want to be the food my pizza eats? The ab absence of the relative pronoun between food and my pizza is also a relative pronoun of sorts. Yep, there are five different ways to represent the relative pronoun in English. That's uh, more wacky than my pizza, I'd say, but um, yeah. Anyways, notice that each of these relative pronouns introduce a clause called a relative clause. Mm-hmm. Now you're kind of seeing all of the interconnectedness of this. I have underlined them here. Who eats pizza? Which eats my siblings? That eats my siblings. What my pizza eats and my pizza eats. Or the relative pronoun is omitted. Okay, so in a sense, each of these relative clauses is really a little separate thought, a separate sentence with its own grammar. In the clause, who eats pizza, who functions as the subject eats? Or rather, I'm sorry, who functions as the su a subject eats is the verb and pizza is the direct object. If you turn the dependent relative into an independent sentence and use and... So it reads, and they ate pizza, or and they eat pizza, you can see clearly that they, the equivalent of who, is the subject of the sentence. See how that, that there we go, cool beans, you like it? All right. So, um, darn it, I lost my train of thought. What was I? Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, so I'm going to turn back a little bit. If you turn, like, a dependent relative clause into an independent sentence and use and, oh, yeah. Um, so in the relative clause, which eats my pizza, which, again, is functioning as the subject. As you can easily see, if you turn the relative clause into an independent sentence and rephrase it as, and it eats my siblings, and the same for that eats my siblings. It's equivalent to, and it eats my siblings. But while all these clauses have full grammar, nominative subjects, verbs, objects, and so on, none of them can stand out alone grammatically and make sense because they're all, they're all introduced by the relative pronoun. A subordinating conjunction that creates a non-independent clause. That's what clause means if you didn't know, that there's a full, complete, and coherent 
and coherent grammar involved, but that the statement cannot stand alone and make sense without its aforementioned parts, a.k.a. relative clauses. In order to be part of a grammatical construction that makes sense, the relative clause must be embedded inside a larger sentence or thought, which is not, or at least less, subordinate grammatically. If you guys <clears throat> remember, I always like to break down words. So subordinate, sub meaning under, and ordinate comes from ordor or dare, which means to order. So when you, you subordinate, you under you order underneath. And that's what a subordinate clause is. It's kind of like this, this thing that's kind of within the larger context. And the way the clause is connected to the main sentence is through the relative pronoun, which is an antecedent. A noun that it's tied to in the main sentence and that the clause modifies. So therefore, antecedents get their name from the fact that they tend to seed, come, remember, sedere, um, and anti before, right? So sed meaning come, and then anti meaning before. So the relative clause that comes before modifies them. That's what antecedent means. Before we take the next step and look at how relative pronouns and antecedents interact, and even how the Latin relative pronoun is formed, let's make certain that you understand the English side of the equation fully. That's always my modus operandi, M-O. That's where we get that term, M-O. My means of operation, essentially. You know what? Um, so, English uses its relative pronoun forms, which, what? and uh, who, both as relative pronouns and as interrogatives, which are question words. Mm -hmm. So, but while these forms are identical, their grammatical function couldn't be more different. So interrogative pronouns are used in independent thoughts, such as what are you doing, where what introduces a question that's a full thought versus what you are doing, which is not a full thought. It needs an independent sentence to attach to, such as it is wrong. Creating a full thought, what you're doing is wrong. That, therefore, creates the full thought of the sentence. Now I'm being a little redundant. There, what is functioning as the relative pronoun, just to reiterate. Therefore, in English, it's important to ask yourself whenever you run into who, which, what, even that W word, um, is introducing a question, like why, you know, um, and thus part of the main sentence, okay? So uh, if so, it's interrogative, not relative. This is mostly true of Latin as well, and you'll learn quickly how to tell whether a W word is interrogative or relative from context. Um, and that's when you start to understand language better, deeper, uh, you know, all that good stuffy stuff. So here in the Latin uh, relative pronoun, and here rather, I'm going to recite the Latin relative pronoun in the singular. So from the masculine, feminine, neuter, I'm just going to go masculine, feminine, neuter uh, from the nominative down to the ablative. So qui, qui, quad, quis, 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 qui, 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 quem, quam, quad, and quo, qua, quo. Even though the nominative singular forms qui, qui, quad are irregular and you'll just have to memorize them as are a lot of things in Latin as well as a lot of things in language, the neuter form quad shows a final D similar to the D seen in illid. 
and characteristic of the archaic neuter singular pronoun forms in Latin. And because the neuter nominative singular is quad, that means the accusative singular is quad also. Notice there's a small irregularity in the base in genitive singular and dative singular, where the standard base qu qua is replaced with a cu a q. Um, you know what, pardon my, I'm not the best, but you know what, trying to get better. Probably for no other reason, rather, that Qus was really hard to say. Q, right? Q-U-I-U-S would be much more difficult than saying C-U-I-U-S. By now, <clears throat> you should expect that the genitive singular to end in I-U-S. And it does in many pronoun forms, right? Qus, right? C-U-I-U-S. And the dative singular form to end in I. While the, uh, the um, what's the name? Why am I forgetting it? Wow, Liam, accusative singular masculine ends in M. There you go. While the accusative singular masculine ends in M, E-M, remember? Qu quem, quam, and then quad. Quam would be the feminine, and then quad would be the neuter. Remember, as I said before, dative is Q-U, or I'm, I'm sorry, C-U-I, qui, 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 all the way across, which is pretty nice. That means that they don't differ in gender. So, um, so yeah, it's feminine counter counterparts and all the ablative singular forms follow first and second collection forms. So now that I've said the singular, dissected the singular a little bit, let's look at the plural for masculine, feminine, neuter, starting at nominative, going all the way down to ablative. I am talking really fast. I'm, I just realized that. I don't know why. I, uh, I'm amped. Let's go. Qui qua or qui quai quai. Quorum quorum quorum. Quibus quibus quibus. Quos quas quai. And quibus quibus quibus. Dative and ablative, as you guys always know very well, they have a pattern where they definitely match each other in the dative plural and ablative plural, as you guys can see with the Q-U-I-B-U-S, quibus, quibus, quibus. Funny words, right? These relative pronouns aren't my favorite, but they're, you know, they're, they are what they are. Um, so note that the nominative forms in the masculine and feminine, qui and quai, are totally predictable. If one assumes first slash second declension endings, rather, so not so much, however, for the neuter nominative and accusative plural quai, which means that the same holds true for its accusative plural counterparts quai, um, which it must be because neuter nominatives and accusatives are always the same. The genitive plural runs it, re, blah, 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 returns to first slash second declension in an utterly predictable way, if you don't mind me saying, producing quorum, 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 right? Oh, oh. Orum or arum or orum, as does the accusative plural masculine and feminine quos and quas. In, in contrast, the dative and ablative plural form quibus, um, which seems to derive from the third declension. Luckily, almost half of the endings come from the first and second declension. So here's the translation of the relative pronoun, which is relatively easy to begin with. There is no difference in translation between the singular and plural. 
English doesn't distinguish between singular and plural relative pronoun forms. So the singular translations here are used also in the plural. English spellings present one challenge, though, in the genitive singular where the proper form is spelt whose, a spelling that distinguishes that from that form from the contraction whose, which is who, ticking mark s, who is, a shortened truncated form of who is to reiterate the fact. Also, English retains an archaic uh, objective form whom, used in the non-nominative cases such as of whom or alternative for whose or to whom in the dative, whom in the accusative, and by with from whom in the ablative. And here's one other thing to note, where I put who in the masculine and feminine forms and which in the neuter, because that is the most common translation for those genders, I'm not really, or I've not been really representing the full relative reality of the issues um, involved in translating the relative pronoun, which I won't. In particular, which can be a, can be and often is used as a translation for the masculine, for, uh, masculine and feminine form of the relative pronoun, especially when its antecedent is something that is masculine or feminine gender in Latin but is perceived in English as an it, such as love. We call love an it, but the Romans called love a he, right? Amor. Therefore, the proper form of the relative pronoun would be qui, deriving its gender from its antecedent amor, which is masculine, like I said before. And that raises an important, indeed essential element in dealing with the relative pronouns. What do they agree with? This is going to be our last little point, and then we're just going to wrap it up here. I'm just going to do this all in one take, and then, uh, you know what? Don't have to deal with any silly little ads. They're clearly drawn two directions. Their antecedent, the noun they modify in a way, has a number, gender, and case. They should agree with that in all three gram grammatical aspects, like any adjective. But they also serve a particular function inside their own clauses. So while there's no problem with them agreeing in number and gender with their antecedent, what about case? Should uh, they be the same case as their antecedent? Or should they take the case necessary to show their function inside their own clause? Um, hmm. If the case of the antecedent and the case required by the relative clause just happen to be the same, well, um, no problem. But statistically, that's not very likely. What if they're not, though? Which case is more um, important for the relative pronoun to take? The answer is, well, if you really think about it, um, it's obvious, the case inside the clause. That's because even if the relative pronoun doesn't agree with its antecedent in case, it still does in number and gender, which makes it most often very easy to see which noun, or rather, uh, um, which makes it most often very easy to see which noun outside the relative clause is the antecedent. Boom. So the directional factor, which dictates most adjective case endings, isn't an overriding issue in this circumstance, right? A relative pronoun agrees with its antecedent in number and gender, but not case. It gets its case from its use in its own clause, as I mentioned prior at the beginning of the episode slash lesson.
Take, for example, this headline in the newspaper I saw this morning. Stores finally open up to the public, which had been closed for the prior three months. Yes, this was written amid the corona pandemic. This was actually something that I had read prior. We're actually at this point, you know what, um, we already have Russia invading Ukraine. We have so many other things going on right now um, that... uh, COVID has been kind of, um, we've jumped from permacrisis to permacrisis to permacrisis. Talk about my students living through uh, crazy, crazy times, crazy history. I can't imagine growing up right now. Well, I kind of am. We all are in a way. So what case would the relative pronouns antecedent to the public be? And I'll say that sentence again. Stores finally open up to the public, which had been closed for the prior three months. Okay, to the public. Be in Latin. Accusative, right? It's the direct object in the sentence. But how is the relative pronoun which functioning in its own clause, which had been closed, is equal to the stores had been closed? See? Very simple. Very easy. You know what? It's just a which taking place the stories. It's the subject, a.k.a. nominative. That means it's neuter plural because it's antecedent and nominative because of its function in its own clause. And the neuter nominative plural form of the relative pronoun qui, qui, quad in this case would be qui. So I'm going to leave it there. It's been a lot of information. I'm sure you have a lot to to, uh, download and debrief. Um, But thanks again for sticking with me. Appreciate you all. Tempo says discovery. And again, if you like this, please go ahead and visit my podcast on Spotify. Give it a five-star rating. I would very much appreciate that, as well as Apple Podcasts, where you can write something to me. And uh, hey, write something, and uh, I'll be able to shout you out and and all that good stuff. Like, you know, I already had have people reaching out to me um, from... Uh, across the the ocean. It's just like such an affirming thing to know that I'm actually touching people and making a a difference and or just disseminating the knowledge of Latin and how it is such an unsung hero. You know what? So without further ado, I'll let you all go. I hope you have a great day. Tempus est discovery.